Hello, church family. This is Esther chapter 8. This is what we're going to look over this week. And um, as we move forward uh, with this chapter, particularly towards the end, I'm going to uh, restate something uh, that that I think is really the theme, um, or one of the themes uh, in these last three chapters. And that is that the Lord uh, works in ways that we will never be able to imagine. The Lord works in ways that we'll never be able to imagine. And oftentimes, um, it's not what we expect, uh, but the end result of how he uses people, situation, events, trials, tribulations, how he orchestrates every fabric of, 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 all, of all creation, how he uses everything, um, makes us uh, have a greater trust in him. Right? Every time we read the scripture, every time we see how Especially, particularly the Old Testament, how um, the Lord weaves uh, His people uh, in and out of situations, or individuals in and out of situations, that ultimately brings in the coming of His Son. Um, when we see that big, uh, big picture of God uh, and how He works through history, it should make us trust Him in the present, because uh, that means because God doesn't all of a sudden take a break when it gets to our time, but He's continually doing that. Um, and this tapestry of of His, his of, of all of history. Uh, though it may not make sense now, it will make sense one day. And all of the questions, the lingering questions we that we may have in this life will eventually be answered the moment we get to see and be with our Lord. Uh, the way the, uh, the Lord operates transcends our logic, it transcends our method and ideas. Um, you, he uses a sovereign, uh, he has a sovereign will, but he uses uh, man providentially to fulfill that will. Um, I think I've shared this before, that this is called the doctrine of concurrence, uh, that God, uh, in his sovereign plan, will still somehow, uh, is still in control of everything so that every little individual who acts on their own um, will and, uh, and desires uh, will ultimately fulfill that plan. Um, there is no decision that man makes that escapes the Lord, and everything that he does uh, uh, is the Lord, everything that the Lord does will ultimately come into fruition, even if man is not even aware of it. And we see that in this book, particularly in this book, because um, none of the characters are aware that there are other chapters. None of the characters here are aware that, um, that their lives would be changed in, a, in an instant. Um, so when we get to chapter 8, uh, you recall, actually, by, let me backtrack a little bit, uh, chapter 7 is when... Uh, uh, the second banquet. This is where Esther had a meal with both Haman and King Ahasuerus, and uh, he asked the king asked, "What do you want?" And he said, and Esther responded by saying, "I want uh, my people to be spared. I want my people to uh, not be killed or destroyed or annihilated." Using the same words from the edict that both the king and Haman uh, put on the uh, uh, when they made the, the law to kill all the Jews. And um, when the king asked who dares to, to, to plan this, uh, the queen said it is the, the, the wicked man, Haman. Um, and uh, the king gets upset. He goes out to the garden and he's like pondering what happens because in a sense, the king was also involved in this. So he can't, he, there's no way he's going to throw himself under the bus, but he also needs to find a way in which uh, uh, he can uh, basically place all the blame on Haman or, or find a, find a way, like a loophole out of it. He sees that when he goes back into the, 
the, the banquet hall, and he sees Haman um, pleading for his life on uh, uh, as he's kind of like on the floor begging uh, uh, Queen Esther to, to spare him. It looks from a distance that Haman wants to assault Queen Esther. Uh, so very tactfully and swiftly, the king said, oh, is this guy going to assault my wife in my own house? And then all of the uh, guards came, um, put a bag over his head, and then hung him on the same gallows that he had intended for Mordecai. So now we get to uh, chapter 8. And chapter 8 actually doesn't begin in a sense of... Uh, but it, uh, it doesn't just end. Chapter 7 doesn't end. The book doesn't end. There's actually, obviously, we have a few more chapters. But the reason why it doesn't end is because just because Haman is gone, that the uh, the rule, the, the edict that they made is still active. You recall that throughout this entire uh, book, uh, as we're going through this um, devotionally, I said that one of the Persians' uh, idea with the law is that you cannot overthrow whatever the king says is absolute but it's only absolute until there's another rule that kind of supersedes it. Uh, so this is what this whole um, chapter is going to be out. They're going to try to figure out a way to get uh, to get out of this mess. So I'm going to divide uh, this chapter into four sections, uh, which is something I don't usually do in terms of just kind of giving the uh, uh, an outline like or like scenes. Um, but then later on, I'll, uh, throughout the week, I'll give uh, some theological applications for us. Um, and I do want us to, again, I've said this earlier first, that uh, God works in mysterious ways. And one of the things that he does is he, he uses reversals, uh, things that normally at one point was uh, one thing and it changes to to another. Uh, there's an irony in what the Lord does um, because it's supposed to show you that God will, God's will cannot be thwarted, that man's will is always under the will of the Lord. So the four scenes that we're going to see first is, the first scene is the desperate becomes a deliverer, first one and two. On that day, King Azuras gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther and Mordecai. Uh, and, uh, to Queen Esther and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So, uh, that exact day, uh, Haman's, all of Haman's estate, when this is the house of Haman, it's not like necessarily just the people, but everything that Haman owned, every authority, every um, possession, also that he bragged about, uh, that's all given to Mordecai. All the status, everything is now given to uh, uh, Mordecai. Uh, he uses this, um, it's funny because like the, uh, at the end of verse 1, uh, Queen Esther disclosed what he was to her, and this must be it's like it must be a revelation to the king that like oh my own wife is a Jew and that Mordecai is related to my to my wife and basically all the thing that Mordecai said in the beginning of the book don't tell anyone he now she now lets him know uh, the secret and um, and again this is a king uh, an earthly king that claims to be a, a, almost like a deity first like a deity you know he tried to deify himself but yet he doesn't even realize that his own wife was someone that he almost inadvertently killed. Uh, so the king took off this, his ring and he gave it to uh, Haman. And uh, Haman now has authority over all of the house of, um, of Haman. Mordecai has, has authority over all of the house of Haman. Um, again, this shows that the desperate 
is now the deliverer because uh, when he has authority over all the things that Haman has authority over, he can now uh, um, speak with the same uh, power and, and influence, um, which moves on to the next scene. The victim becomes a victor. The victim becomes a victor, verse 3 to 8. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell as feet, wept and implored him to avert the schemes of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot which he had revised against the Jews. Um, it's interesting that uh, uh, the queen said it's his plot, meaning the uh, Haman's, as opposed to the king, because again, he, uh, he, she's trying to be tactful with the way that she goes about uh, figuring out a way to um, win the king uh, over. And the king extended his golden scepter to Esther, so Esther rose and stood before the king. This is the same thing that happened earlier when, um, in chapter, uh, uh, end of chapter four, when he was, was when the es- when Queen Esther wanted to go meet the king, and then the king has to raise a scepter before uh, people are able to enter, otherwise that person would be killed. And it's weird at this point you think, okay, that's the queen, you don't need to use a scepter thing anymore. But you know, Persians have their um, traditions that it's just you know those some traditions just die hard. Um, so she goes, the queen goes, and then, verse 5, then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadiva, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who were in all of the king's province. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? How can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Azurah said to the queen, said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jews, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he has stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name, and seal it with the king's with the king's signet ring, for a decree which is written in the name of the king's seal with the, with the king and sealed the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So basically, uh, Queen becomes, uh, she used to be really tactful and emotional, but uh, seemingly stoic. But at this point, she's like crying and pleading. The language uh, has this idea of her um, losing her composure. And she's just like weeping in front of him and, um, and, and like pleading that, uh, that, that he do something about it. And the king said, I, look, I, did, I did all that I can. Um, in fact, why don't you write the decree? Because, you know, the king is not the one that's going to, he's not the kind of guy that likes to write things, he just rather just delegates, which again reveals to you the type of character he is. He doesn't really care so much about the rules per se, but he just rather just cares about his own um, self-interest, his own self-preservation. He said, oh, you guys write it. You guys figure out how how we should do this decree and whatever the king, whatever sign with the king's signet, that thing goes, that thing doesn't, that thing um, will not be revoked. Uh, again, this is the, the Persian rule that any rule that's made is going to be stuck that way. Um, and that's just a law of the land. There's nothing that they can do about it. So now the victims here get to decide on how they are to uh, figure out how to solve this problem. Um, and we get to the next point, the next section, next scene, which is uh, the hunted becomes a hunter. Verse 9 to 14. The hunted becomes the hunter. So the king's scribe were called at that time in the third month, that is in the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all the Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, 
and the princes of the province which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script and to every people according to their language, as well as the Jews according to their script and their languages. Now, this should sound familiar because uh, when Haman made the rule, he, he made sure that uh, everyone in all the provinces know uh, that, uh, that they need to exterminate Jews within that a, a year from now. Um, but now it's like almost like the reverse. Uh, so Mordecai continued, right? He wrote, in the name of the king, in name of King Azuherz, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent uh, by couriers on horses riding on steads, stirred by the royal stud. In them the kings granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all provinces of King Andrew, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, a copy of the edict, uh, to, be li- a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the people so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on the royal steads and the decree was given out at the citadel of Susa. So, uh, they go out. He has rule and, said, and, the, and the way to basically tackle and nullify the previous edict is that the Jews can now defend themselves. Whereas before the Jews were now uh, hunted, they now have a way to defend themselves. They say, okay, anyone that threatens the Jews, the Jews can kill you, and they can plunder you, take everything you want. Basically, it's like the reverse of what Haman uh, made. Um, and even the language is the same, like to dis- in verse 11, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Uh, that's exactly what um, Esther said in chapter 7, and that's what Mordecai wrote early on in the book. Uh, this is all intended uh, to show you the, the, the great reversal of the, of the, of the edict. And uh, and it went out everywhere. So now there's this. It, it, now as we see this, we think, well, is this fair? And you understand that the Jews are operating in a kind of a like in, they're they're being attacked with with a certain amount of force, and they want to fight back with an equal amount of force. It didn't say that the Jews are allowed to just start exterminating other people. It just said that if they were threatened, that they could fight back. If people decide to attack them, that they can uh, take their life. So it's almost like an eye for an eye kind of situation. Um, it was designed so that um, people, they will have some sort of deterrence over this, over the land. Um, whereas, whereas before this edict, uh, there was probably anti-Semitism everywhere, but this law made everyone in the same uh, a, a playing field. Because before this, people could have picked on the Jews and said, oh, well, you're going to die anyway, so I might as well just do things early. Now, with this new law in the land that kind of coincides with the old law, uh, now the Jews could defend themselves. They could say, well, if you attack me, I have authority from the king to kill you. Whereas the Jews, whereas the, the rest of the nation that want to kill the Jews, they only had one day in that one year from now uh, situ- uh, scenario. That's the only time they could do it. But the Jew, the, this, this new decree allows them to defend themselves at all times. So now the hunted, uh, the once hunted people are now the hunters. They could, they're really, they have the ability now to defend themselves in ways that they could not have just a few days earlier. Which then goes to our last scene. Uh, the, the dreary becomes the delight. Um, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, 
with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Um, there's this, again a contrast, whereas um, when the first edict went out, there was weeping and anguish and confusion. Now their people are rejoicing. Uh, the Jews are now, and Mordecai earlier was like t- wearing sackcloth and ripping his clothes and, and um, yeah, doing all that. Now he's wearing his royal uh, cl- garments. Again, it shows the reversal of everything. Verse 16, for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. This is, again, contrasting all of the things that happened before. Now they are, are rejoicing and, and, and are thankful to live life. Verse 17, in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's command and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many among the people of the land became Jews, but the dread of Jews had fallen on them. So this last uh, section here, and uh, regarding the people becoming Jews, there's different interpretation of what that means. Some people think that this means that um, people like the Gentiles suddenly became Jews. Other think that they just um, people just sided with the Jews, so it wasn't like they uh, took. Uh, it wasn't like they started worshiping the gods of Israel. Rather, they just said, okay, we're on the same team. I hold to the second view, mainly because there wasn't any uh, like sacrifices. There was no priests involved. There was no religious activity uh, whatsoever. It was just kind of like, oh, they're, now we identify ourselves with the Jews. Um, it's kind of like they're like saying, okay, now we switch sides. We're on the same team now. Uh, but they're not the same as like they are worshiping God together. Again, I think this shows that the, the all of the Jews here, they are still in disobedience to the Lord, but God is still preserving his remnants. God is still preserving his people. God is still willing to fulfill his end of the promise, even though God, God's people aren't even aware of his promise at this point. Um, so these people are rejoicing, they're celebrating, and they even make a festival later on called Purim. Uh, but it's interesting, again, Purim doesn't highlight necessarily God saving them. It's more about how Mordecai and Esther saved them. Uh, it's more about how man's achievements, even though they aren't aware that God was using every single individual to, fulf- to protect them, to spare them. Now, this whole thing, uh, this whole reversal throughout this entire chapter, it's actually throughout the Bible as well. Like all of the people at one point that was deemed lowly or insignificant were able will eventually be used mightily by the Lord. You remember Abram or Abraham? Um, he started out with this is just a nomad uh, worshiping the moon god, and eventually God chose him, told him, "You leave this land, I will make a great nation out of you. Uh, through your descendants, there's going to be a more. You're going to have more descent than the stars in the sky." Uh, you remember Joseph? He was the favorite brother, and uh, he gets uh, beaten and sold into uh, Egypt, and when he got there, um, uh, he was accused of, of sleeping with Potiphar's wife and thrown in jail, and then later on, he gets delivered, and he becomes the one that saves his brother, and again, preserving the promise that God made to Abraham, that there was gonna, that God's going to raise a nation. Uh, Moses, he was starting, he, his birth was it was a mass genocide of all the Jews, and 
and God spares Moses. He he keeps him in his palace, raised by his own birth mother, and uh, became arguably maybe second to Jesus, the most influential Jewish leader in all of history. You know, he's one of the most well-known people. David, David was a shepherd boy. You remember in in First uh, Samuel. Uh, when uh, Samuel was looking, when God tells Samuel to look for another a king, uh, he goes to Jesse and he and Jesse shows all of his sons except for David. In fact, David wasn't even invited. David was a puny shepherd boy and he wasn't invited to the party. And then he, uh, Samuel went through each and every single son. He's like, this is not the one, this is not the one. And then the shepherd boy is the one that God uses, the one that is the, the sheep herder becomes a king of Israel. And really the greatest king until Solomon, even a greater, well, actually, he's the, it's through David that the Davidic covenant comes where eventually our, our uh, Messiah comes from. Uh, and of course, we all know Jesus. Jesus was is God. He, he's the eternal God. He became a, a baby, and he became a human baby, uh, bounded by the finiteness of man. He had his... Um, he had all of the limitations of man, but he ne- he never lost his deity. He was fully man. Uh, he was uh, the you know the God of all creation humbles himself to die on the cross for sinners. These are all great reversals, and again, it's to show you that God does not operate in the way that we think. And these are just some examples of 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 how we can trust the Lord. When we look at our life now, we see how um, how hard things are in our life. We can know that the Lord is working through everything. Every fabric of reality is under the sovereign hand of God. So uh, this, um, again, this doesn't just stop in terms of the Old Testament or New Testament, but it happens to us today. And the great reversal in the life of the Christian should make us trust him more so that uh, we can trust him more so that we can also see that his way is indeed greater than ours. And when we see his way as greater than ours, we, would, we wouldn't be bothered when our plans are thwarted. We wouldn't get bothered when things don't go our way uh, because we know that God is doing something with this. Uh, with whatever situation, like whether the big things of the, like the COVID-19 or, or difficult things like a job or health issues, God is working through everything. And if we uh, see more of these type of great reversals in our life, we can, we can be assured that God is still using us even during this difficult time. Uh, so this coming week, I have, I wrote down eight things that we can learn in terms of great reversals. Um, I don't know if we'll get through all of them, but I'll try to get through as many as I can. Uh, but I'll, I'll list them out for you, some of the other great reversals that the Lord uh, has expected of us. First is the first becomes, the last will become first. Um, the second is the suffering, the sufferer becomes a comforter. Third is the fool becomes the wise. Fourth is the humble becomes the exalted. Uh, fifth is the poor becomes rich. Uh, sixth is the weak becomes strong. Seventh, the fear becomes fearless. And the last one, the death becomes life. And these type of great reversals in the life of the Christian, uh, these are something that we need to embrace um, because these are commands in the scripture. These are what these are the expectations of what. Uh, of the Lord for the life of the Christian. Um, so as we look through this, I hope that we will be encouraged to be thankful of the great reversal and how the Lord uses these s- seemingly backwards things uh, 
to fulfill his glory. Okay, look forward to our study this week, coming week. Uh, have a nice day.